Welcome to Mindharma, real conversations about what really matters. Our next guest on the Mindharma podcast is Dr. Scott Teasdale. Scott is an accredited practicing dietitian and postdoctoral research fellow at the University of New South Wales, Sydney, within the Mind Gardens Neuroscience Network in Australia. As a clinical dietitian and researcher, he helped build a dietetic service as part of a broader lifestyle program from pilot to routine clinical care across a mental health service in Sydney. Dr. Teasdale currently focuses on a broad range of real-world effectiveness and implementation research that aims to reduce the health disparities experienced by people living with mental illness. Scott has a wealth of knowledge in this area and we are absolutely delighted to have him with us today to share his expert insights on the important relationship between nutrition and mental health. We hope you enjoyed the podcast. We acknowledge the traditional owners and custodians of the various lands on which this podcast is recorded. We acknowledge their deep and ongoing spiritual connection to the land, sea and community. We pay our respects to their ancestors, their elders and leaders, past, present and emerging. And in doing so, we acknowledge and honour the spirit of Makarata and the Uluru Statement from the Heart. Dr. Scott Teasdale, welcome to the Mindamra podcast, and we're delighted to have you with us today to share your insights and wisdom. Very happy to be here. Thank you for inviting me. Thanks, Scott. You know, you've been researching the relationship between nutrition and mental health for quite some time now. And before we jump into that and explore some of your research findings, can you tell us a little bit about your story and why you chose to specialise in this specific area? Absolutely. It was a, an interesting start for me. Um, it was about a decade ago and I was looking to make my, uh, I guess, start in dietetics and had, had done a few different roles, but it was one advertised role in Southeast Sydney Mental Health Service to part-time for a temporary dietitian to run an intervention for early psychosis uh, service users uh, to prevent the physical health ailments they rapidly um, experience. And to me, that was something completely new. It's not something we got taught yeah. at university at that time. And it it just sort of hit a bit of a chord with me with, with how they put forward that for someone that was young and otherwise quite healthy to then uh, unfortunately experience quite a significant event, such as a first episode of psychosis, to then be compounded by um, medication and other issues that which then actually drive really stark physical mm. health inequalities, including rapid weight gain when they commence uh, some of the antipsychotic medications. And it ultimately led to leads to a 10 to 15 year mortality gap. So they're actually dying 10 to 15 years earlier uh, from preventable causes and uh, it, it's been considered a scandal and, and something we mm. really need to address. I remember that research paper coming across it not that long ago, and it really is a concerning statistic. So it clearly had a really profound impact upon you that it propelled you into this area. Absolutely, it did. It, it's when you hear it's from preventable, preventable causes that, you know, are associated with the medications, as well as other things that the person is going through and where nutrition plays a critical mm. role in all of this. Um, it absolutely struck a chord with me and, and I felt like I 
had something to offer and was really happy to get the role and um, have, haven't looked back since. Um, and now looking at not just how we can um, protect the physical health in young people experiencing first episode psychosis, but look at the looking at the physical health and med- mental health benefits of, of nutrition in broader population groups. That's wonderful, Scott. And I, you know, it's important for our learners to, re- to hear that you've actually won multiple awards for your incredible research and your efforts too. So I'd just like to share that. You know, before we jump into this topic, I have to say the amount of information that we receive about nutrition can be quite overwhelming. I don't know if you have this feeling when you're walking down the Woolies aisle or the Coles aisle, or even if you're in a really large chemist and you just see that wall of supplements and um, all the different vitamins that you could possibly be taking. Um, I'd love to hear your thoughts on that. But before we get back to that in a moment, I'd just like you to explain to our listeners what the relationship actually is and like an overview between the digestive system and our nervous system. So that gut-brain access that researchers often refer to, what is that exactly? Sure. So the I guess the main point at the start is the gut microbiome is our bacteria living in our large in, in, in our intestines. And essentially the, the gut-brain access is how the, I guess, diversity is probably the the best term um, at this point in time with with research, how that is associated with or as research evolves, potentially causes or protects certain medical ailments. And it it predominantly works through the the vagus nerve up Mm. to the brain, and that's why it's called the gut-brain axis. So the gut microbiome at this point in time has been associated with a range of physical health and mental health ailments uh, and we're just trying to work out what's causative or, you know, or not. So essentially in, in, in simple terms, if we improve our gut microbiome, can we prevent, uh, you know, sort of mental ill health or prevent a, another physical health ailment or can we help manage it better? And that's where we're trying to understand more of now. That's fascinating. So on that note, we see so many different prebiotics and probiotics out there. And as I said, that experience, I know I'm not unique to having that experience of seeing that wall of vitamins and supplements and feeling a bit overwhelmed by them. And they're all claiming to be wonderful. And um, I'd love to hear your thoughts on that. When it comes to improving our gut health, what do, what is the role of those prebiotics and probiotics? Yeah, I think the starting point is to probably differentiate between foods and supplements. So supplements yes. can make more outlandish claims and don't need to go this, through the same processes as food do. So I've got some experience in doing what we call Schedule 6 systematic literature reviews for food products so that a manufacturer can make a health claim on that product. Mm. Um, So one claim that I've looked at previously is a prebiotic um, and how it can be used in as a health claim on a food product. So not only do you have to look at the, uh, I guess, the breadth of evidence and the, the amount of evidence you need to look at, can the, you know, does it definitely impact on what you're saying it's going to impact on in a causative fashion is the amount that you're someone would consume with this product and as part of their typical diet enough to um, make a difference and to to it i guess insight that benefit benefit um, mm. or protective factor 
and is it in the right food matrix as well? So it gets quite, uh, mm. it's quite a lengthy and uh, comprehensive process to do it for food products, but not necessarily for um, your supplements where you see a lot more, I guess, uh, strong claims being made. And so I guess the role of prebiotics is that they can, so prebiotics like inulin-type fructans mm. um, and fructo-oligosaccharide work by, I guess, feeding the bac- bacteria in our, mm. in our guts and it helps them, them grow the beneficial bacteria. Mm. The probiotics are essentially providing directly bacteria into your body. So if we go back to that claim that I did, we were able to show that inulin-type fructans improve bifidobacteria, which is a healthy bacteria or or so-called healthy bacteria that is associated with uh, a range of health benefits. But we weren't able to say that eat this because it's inulin and it'll prevent um, depression Mm. or anything like that. So we could say that there's definite evidence that inulin um, will improve your gut bacteria. Mm -hmm. Sorry, it was specifically to bifidobacteria, but that extended claim um, wasn't able to be made. Mm -hmm. Um, So I think there is a bit of a difference between, I guess, food products and the supplements industry. Prebiotics are very much in our food system as is, and Mm -hmm. it it would very much depend on the the dietary pattern that you're eating as to whether you're um, eating enough to get the benefits of fibre and um, prebiotic fibres. Mm. And uh, whereas um, your probiotics, um, it's a little bit of a different story and you're sort of buying products particularly because they're a probiotic um, and not necessarily always in the standard uh, or traditional dietary pattern. So with probiotics, there's also an issue. So I always refer back to a gut microbiome expert, actually, who said, look, some probiotics work well in research studies but there's actually a far cry between what's being used in the studies and what's commercially available right okay it is a point of um an interesting point and at this point in time i don't routinely recommend probiotics they're generally from from what i understand generally safe but you know it's sort of a cost benefit analysis do we really know if it's doing that much good mm. to you and you could be paying a lot of money and if we think about the the context that i work um frequently work with people with serious mental illness where you know income and um and and money can be a, a an issue um, sure and we need a can certainly a consideration so i'd be saying let's look at your dietary pattern and try and get more bang mm. for our bang for our buck from that that makes a lot of sense. And I think it would be lovely to hear um, on that note, what are the foods that really do contribute to creating that healthy gut microbiome and really have that protective and even potentially protective impact? I know you said the research is constantly evolving and emerging in this area and there's so much to still discover. Um, but what do we know about food? And in, at Mind Dharma, we often acknowledge that in terms of foundational self-care, because we know self-care directly can protect mental health, particularly if we're prioritizing movement, um, sleep and nutrition. But what would be your kind of gold standard if you're looking at the research in terms of that diet? What are you looking for 
in terms of it having a, a good impact on mental health and physical health? It's a really good question. And we're moving away from individual foods now and or, mm. and or individual nutrients, talking at an overall dietary pattern. The best way, because the messages can get really complicated, the, the trend at this point in time is to say, let's go back to a more traditional dietary pattern. Um, what we're eating before, you know, a lot of the ultra-processed ultra foods, which have a starved of all the good nutrition and have a lot of added sugar, salt and fats um, put in them um, and moving back towards, you know, a, a more traditional dietary pattern, which is fruits, fruits and vegetables, whole grains, nuts and seeds, oily fish and other lean meats, tea and water and uh, using uh, a good quality oil like uh, extra virgin olive oil. It could be that you use the Mediterranean diet, which is researched a lot and you know, in terms of both mental health and physical health has a really strong backing behind it. But the other thing we need to consider is that that doesn't work for everyone. What mm. One thing I've, I've learned as from my clinical experience is that what once works for one person almost always doesn't work for the next person. So we need to work with each individual person. So if we sort of have that overall concept of, okay, let's move back to a traditional dietary pattern but let's see how it works for you. If the Mediterranean diet, if you enjoy that type of eating um, and those flavors and those types of food, perfect. If it's if that's not mm. for you, we can go to you know a Nordic diet or you know just finding what works for the individual person. But that's I guess in terms of both physical and mental health, the great thing is it's the same dietary pattern that is favorable for both. Um, mm. rather than needing to do one which looks at physical health and another one that looks at mental health. That's really interesting. And personally, I love the Mediterranean diet. You know, it's mm. got so much flavour in it. But I, I hear you when you share that we have to have this almost person-focused approach. I, that's very compassionate too because when people are struggling with mental health sometimes, and we'll get to this a bit later, it can feel like such a big challenge, you know, for other others love working on their nutrition. It might be the first thing they choose in terms of self-care. But for other people, and I would say even including mental health professionals and people and researchers, they will struggle to implement some of this stuff. So I'm going to get back to, I'm going to loop back around to this, Scott, because it's so important. But I'd really love you to share, going back to what you were mentioning a moment ago on the processed foods, this dark side of food, if we can kind of put it that way. Um, I've read a bit over the years in terms of the impact of processed foods in terms of it creating harmful inflammation in the body. Can you expand on that and share a little more uh, around this? Absolutely. So inflammation is, I guess, I would still call it one theory of what happens in the body. Mm. And it might be that it's actually linked to the gut microbiome and the, and the gut-brain axis as, as how it all works. There has been a dietary inflammation index created where it looks at uh, a range. I think there's about 30 or, or more foods and nutrients that get a positive or negative score based on their association with inflammation in the body. Mm. So if you're consuming those nutrients, um, you're either, you know, potentially driving higher or lower inflammation in the body, and that's associated Again, it's sort of steps, but that's then associated with a range of negative health outcomes, both physical and mental health. And I guess it's not 
necessarily just ultra processed foods. I think it's more when we, we're trying to give a more simplified version of what people should do because people do get bombarded with messages and gets overly complicated and gets mixed messages all the time, depending on who you're talking to. If you're trying to simplify it a little bit more, that's uh, tends to be a trend of what people would say at the moment. Um, and yeah, so it might be that the inflammation occurs because of, you know, you eat the food and the micro through the microbiome, increasing the inflammation levels. And uh, yeah, it's more of a, an association rather than a causative role at the mm. moment. The dark side of food, I guess, just to go off topic a little bit, we just have to be, I guess, mindful that saying good and bad foods actually can affect someone's mental health in itself. Mm. And mm. Um, this idea of you needing to eat only healthy foods and mm. not eat any unhealthy foods can actually drive a lot of um, mental uh, ill health and um, uh, suboptimal mental health and actual disordered eating behaviours. So it, it, it's a bit of a fine line in, in the way we approach things. So mm. we do know that a more traditional dietary pattern has all these health benefits, but the way we approach it needs to be um, important as well. So we need to make sure that people maintain a really positive and rewarding relationship with food because um, that actually can be another dark side of food is when it, you, you do develop a really uh, a negative relationship with food as well. It makes a lot of sense, you know, because I mean, I even if I look at my own experience with food and um, similar to yourself, qualified and an allied health profession, and I'm sure you could relate to this, Scott, you know, when you were training years ago in your profession, it, you're kind of on the move all the time. And I know a lot of our learners through MindDharma, they're first responders, they're teachers, they work in service to others uh, areas. Um where there's a lot of focus on the well-being of others. That includes researchers. And so there can be a tendency to put our self-care and even our eating lunch or pausing for lunch at the last of our, you know, our, our to-do list. So we'll get to lunch. And I certainly have had um, experiences where I might, it might be three o'clock by the time I've, I've corrected this, but it was quite the journey. Having lunch at three o'clock, which is definitely not optimal <laughs> for my well-being, what are your comments on that? You know, because I agree that it's the pattern of behavior with food that can also directly impact our well-being and and maybe our mental health and physical health long term too. I guess for myself, in terms of mm. self care, um, it it has developed over a long time. And for me personally, I was someone that today used to have an all or nothing approach, mm. particularly when I was starting to go through learning about nutrition and, and lifestyle. And it, it took me a while to develop that sort of resilience, I guess, to, um, you know, or that better outlook and stop trying to find foods and meals that are perfect, um, stop with any guilt that's associated with food mm. and dwelling on past meals and meals and events and foods. So it's more for me now I'm looking forward and thinking, you know, proactively, you know, what what do I want to do for my next meal or next day that's gonna that's gonna be something that I'm gonna enjoy, that's gonna be nourishing, that's satiating, and try and plan towards that. Mm. Um, and that's around food. I mean, it, it, there's also other things that I, I absolutely need to do in terms of self-care. And I mean, Associate Professor Rosenbaum was talking about the benefits of exercise, and that's absolutely critical. And something that I at the moment, given that I'm a new dad, 
and take care of um, my son as soon as I finish work is that now I'm building that into my lunch break. So I'll either go for a quick run, I'll jump in. You know, when I was living near the beach, I was lucky enough to be living there for a little while. I'd go and jump in the water and mm. have a swim. I'll jump in the pool, um, you know, if I, well, at the moment I've got a pool, which, which is great. Um, and then I'll complement that with, you know, a really simple meal. Um, yeah, and it's something that I'll generally try and prepare ahead of time so that it, it's, you know, taking five, ten minutes absolute most in terms of preparation. Mm. And, um, and I guess the other aspect of self-care in terms of, you know, meditation, that hasn't really been a thing for me. But now I've never really found it useful until becoming a dad and now sitting outside, enjoying the surroundings, spending time with my son mm. without technology and just being in the moment actually is really great for my self-care and this is all great but it's it you know what works for me doesn't always work for the next person and I absolutely can sort of acknowledge that you know people like your paramedics and and nurses and firefighters and that you know time can be really challenging and the time of day that they're they're Mm. all night that they're Mm -hmm. working um can also be really really challenging so obviously the first plate starting point is to find a routine or eating plan that works for you in your situation Mm. not for the next person Mm -hmm. Um, because you do you know growing up everyone wanted to you know follow the meal plan of their idol and that's the thing and you know it happens for what two weeks and (laughs) the person goes back to exactly what they were doing for sure yes so you need to find something that's beneficial but also sustainable that you can keep doing whether you've got the day off and you're at home and you've got all the time in the world or whether you're doing shift work and, or you're doing a double shift and you've got no time whatsoever. Mm-hmm. Um, so I guess some tips that work more generally for people is sort of planning a, a shopping expedition once per week and including things that go in the cupboard, fridge and freezer and things that can go when you want to do a MasterChef meal and try and, you know, really test out your skills and that. Or, you know, when the times when you've got 10 minutes max to sort Mm. of get it ready and then start eating and, you know, have it all finished in 15 minutes. Mm. I think back to, I guess, the days when I was transferring from uni into sort of work life and trying to go away from a lot of the, the takeaway meals that I was having at that time, you know, I was working, studying, and for me, my diet, Mm. even though what I was studying, it wasn't great um, in that I was relying on a lot of convenience foods. Mm. And a stepping stone that worked for me was thinking, okay, let's create a little list of things that I can do that's, um, you know, 15 minutes, absolute max. There's only a couple of steps involved. And it actually helped transition me into being a bit more prepared and creating Mm. meals and foods that I I like to eat. And the other thing I guess that um, I enjoy now is looking at the social media videos because everyone's building up channels and that sort of thing now. And there's a lot of cooking channels that cater to whatever age group, whatever whatever Mm. you like really. Um, You know, even for the young people now, there's there's a lot of young guys and girls that get on there and put their own spin on things and, you know, there's 
swearing and banter and, uh, <laughs> and all that, yeah. which is, you know, it might be vulgar to some people, but it actually really draws in a certain crowd and it yeah. gets them excited about food and wanting yes. to try things and, and that. So I'm all for, you know, doing that sort of thing as well to sort of find that that yeah. sort of motivation and passion and, and ideas, create, you know, to create your own meals. That's fantastic. Mm. It's very creative as well. It's allowing that space for creativity and mm. maybe the joy of food, because I've certainly worked with um, clients over the years who, like you were describing, were really stringent with their meal plans. Or they may even have been um, semi-professional athletes, and that was kind of woven into their their work, but also just everyday people who really were quite hard on themselves, even with their food routine. So being able to weave in that compassion, as you were saying, and being open to a more flexible approach that really works for you in your life at this time point sounds really important. But that must be a gateway back to actually enjoying food. Like that's part of our human nature to sit together and enjoy a lovely meal. It's one of my favorite things when I go back to Ireland, sit around the, the table with family and then enjoy my mother's cooking you know it, it's um I think maybe that's been a bit, little bit lost but maybe after COVID we've appreciated that a little bit more what are your thoughts on that getting together with friends to enjoy a barbecue which seems to be just like a, a religious experience in Australia everyone's so good at barbecue for everyone's mental well-being I'd say it's a, yeah. it can be a really great thing maybe in certain situations if things like there's anxiety and that sort of thing maybe not but in general, general terms, eating with other people, having a social occasion, having that pleasure, enjoyment, um, satisfaction is hugely important. Um, and I, I think it did get a little bit lost in in the last two years for obvious reasons. Mm. And people are sort of finding that again and, and sort of finding how much they've been missing it. And um, I think it's it's great for both, you know, your physical health, but also your mental well-being. Um, mm. Absolutely. On that, I want to loop back around to um, allied health professionals, but particularly in the mental health space, because I know you were involved in a, a research project, an international research study, which was published early last year. And the title of this paper is quite interesting. It's, it's uh, titled An Apple a Day, Psychiatrists, Psychologists and Psychotherapists Report Poor Literacy for Nutritional Medicine. International survey spanning 52 countries, so quite a lot of countries involved in this study. Can you share a little bit on, on this, Scott, and for our allied health colleagues? I know a lot of different well-being managers and mental health professionals and fellow psychologists are very interested in this topic. What did you and your colleagues find and what do we need to be aware of on this topic? One of the main takeaways for me was that the lack of training that other mental health professionals undergo. So psychi mm. psychiatrists, psychologists, um, you know, other a lot of other mental health clinicians, in general medical doctors, it, it, it can be a big oversight in terms of nutrition before you even talk about nutritional psychiatry, um, where you're sort of linking the brain and, and food together. And that was one of the big takeaways. We also found that there was a lot of interest in it. And the, so the biggest, I guess, knowledge gap was that transfer of knowledge to um, of, of the research to, to the clinicians and mm. get how they can actually implement and what they should be implementing in their day-to-day -day practice and also how they can, um, and this is sort of delving into a little bit of my clinical work as well, how do they work with a dietitian that's a specialist in food and nutrition and how do they refer to them? You know, how mm. does this all 
come together. Mm-hmm. I mean, there are some, there were some interesting findings around certain dietary um, regimes, nutrients that were being prescribed, um, which, you know, may not be with any clinical guidelines, but the vast majority were sort of saying we we don't really know much about this. We'd like to know more. And it yeah, it was a it was a really important study by Sabrina Morkola in in um, Austria uh, that that led it. And I was just lucky to be a part of it and try and get some perspectives from the Australian from Australian colleagues as well. That's so interesting. So on the back of that, is it really highlighting that this area needs to be woven into the core training that psychologists and mental health clinicians complete at university. Is that what um, you and your colleagues are kind of calling for? Like we need to, we need to look at this more seriously because it can have such a profound effect when people are meeting one-on-one in that therapeutic setting. Yes, it needs to be implemented um, as learning from, you know, undergrad through, mm. through studies into, you know, into practice. Mm. It's something that I've been lucky enough to do with the Royal College of Australian and New Zealand psychiatrists with the mm. trainings coming through. I've done some training. I know a colleague has done training with them. So it is, it is getting on the agenda. There's an online course that's now been developed in nutritional psychiatry by the team down at the Food and Mood Centre in Melbourne. Brilliant. Um, that, yeah, so it is something that has been recognised and we're starting to act on that. And a lot of associations, in, including the psychiatrists, as I just mentioned, have an appetite for it, are recognising it, that not only we need to understand nutrition as well as other lifestyle components to protect the physical health of, our, of the people we're working with, but also its role in, in mental health now um, and it's getting much more uh, well-established what that role is is becoming mm, yeah I, I'm really it's really good news to hear that there are programs emerging because there are so many people who are looking for those courses and trainings as part of their CPD too and it may even you know programs in the future that are available to people beyond the mental health um, arena as well who are just genuinely interested in this I think it's good to be aware of this. And on that note, do you have some websites or resources that come to mind, Scott, that you are comfortable recommending our learners check out? Again, recognizing that feeling of you know being overwhelmed by this topic at times and just trying to figure out what is a trustworthy source of information in this arena can be quite challenging at times. Um, so do you have any recommendations for people um, to check out after this podcast too? Yes. I think a a good starting point is going back to the general guidelines. So Australia has dietary guidelines that are constantly getting updated. The World Health Organization has guidelines. Um, You know, the the association that I'm a part of is Mm -hmm. the International Society of Nutritional Psychiatry Research, Mm -hmm. and that's starting to provide um, more and more training and resources. That's more specific to um, nutritional psychiatry. So the thing I guess to take in mind is when we talk about general guidelines mm. um, that we have here in Australia that the World Health Organization have put out, they're just guidelines. So they're trying to guide people as into the right mm. direction. Mm. It really does. The, the issue is that 
you know, less than 10% or something of the population actually follow them. So the, there are guidelines and guiding documents out there, but the biggest issue that we face is that um, the majority of people aren't following the guidelines. Mm. And I guess it does come back to a bit more of a person-centred approach. You need to just putting guidelines out there doesn't solve all the problems, nor does it work for every person. So mm. you need... I guess that's where my profession can come in and, and say, okay, here's the guidelines. We know generally what direction we want to go, but I need to work with you and work out how this is going to look in your daily life. How we, how can we work together and achieve the goals around nutrition that you want to achieve? And so that might involve if you had a checkup with your GP, for example, and someone has had been having digestive issues or, or it may not have even, um, you know, their difficulties may not have been so showing up that way, let's say, but a GP may make a call to refer on to someone who specializes in this area, a dietitian who specializes in um, food and mental health and as, as a way of um, accessing those resources and getting that personalized plan. Something we want to do in the future is have dietitians that have done certain training and qualifications in mental mm-hmm. health. We don't mm-hmm. have it yet. The most we'd say is that if someone like myself has been working in, you know, in mental health services for a certain length of time, for a number of years, then they would have specialised mm-hmm. more based on the, the duration of exposure, I guess, rather than any specific qualification. One thing we're doing with that International Society of Nutritional Psychiatry Research is to consider how do we create something that a GP or psychiatrist or anyone else that wants to sort of direct someone to a dietitian knows they're going to get someone that has specialised in in mental health and will, you know, Mm. has the skills and knowledge to do what, you know, you're wanting them to do. So it's a work in progress. We do have people will list their areas of interest as a dietitian. Mm -hmm. Um, But, yeah, it's we want to work a bit more on actual sort of a qualification, so to speak. Well, it's great to hear that it's on the agenda, though, because that's, um, you know, it's quite hopeful too, having that, knowing that there's a forward thinking around this and that there's a plan of action, let's say. Now, I want to just weave in a little bit of workplace mental health, which is one of our areas of expertise at Mind Dharma. And you've probably come across a lot of different workplace health promotion initiatives over the years. They've been very um, prevalent in organizations for quite a long time. And often, and even when I worked corporately back in the day, there would be some kind of workplace health promotion or initiative that would bring in some kind of focus on diet or this balanced diet. I'd just like to hear your thoughts on that, Scott. And what, what do well-being managers and, let's say, leaders who are aiming to create a, a mentally healthy workplace. From your perspective, how should they be approaching this from, a, from the research evidence to date? Yeah, my experience so far has mainly been in the mental health service mm-hmm. and how that how we should be working with our employees and, and people utilising the services to improve the food service and, and overall well-being. And I guess the, the main program that we've run actually was covered by um, Associate Professor Rosenbaum in a previous mm. co- podcast, which was called Keeping Our Staff in Mind. Mm. And it really just sh- 
gave people a lot, the employees, a lifestyle intervention. Our goal was to um, upskill our mental health um, employees uh, and mental health clinicians, including the psychiatrists, in, in knowing what, you know, dietitians, exercise physiologists actually do what their role within the mental health service would be and how to refer on. But what we were finding is providing that type of program, we were getting people reporting, you know, improved diet quality, um, improved dietary pattern, increased exercise, just because you're providing, um, you know, that that education and, I guess, intervention to make mm. it actually happen. Um, so that's my greatest experience mm. and I know of other places and, and things that we do in the hospital which is look at the um, external food that comes in but also the vending machine and there's mm. guidance around vending machines now on how mm. to make it much more uh, I guess nutritionally appropriate um, with what options you're providing and that can be uh, I guess a big hitter because a lot of people will you know particularly when they're short on time and want something for convenience can often go to the vending machine. So there are two that we've sort of definitely looked at in the mental health service. And I guess previously I've done um, some more consulting roles, but didn't quite have, it was more, I guess, identification and then referral on. Yeah, and sure. Yeah, I don't know if it would have had the same impact on actually changing people's lifestyle from just sort of that screening and refer referring them onto their GP, et cetera. So mm. they're sort of two different um, approaches that I've been involved in. I mean, it is really interesting, isn't it, just the power of um, providing evidence-based or research insights to people in a really practical way and the knock-on impact it can have on their physical and mental health potentially that when it's when the message is delivered um in that really clear and concise way how it can have that knock and effect so I, I do think there's something really important to acknowledge here in that study that other organizations could potentially look at because we also know that um you know frontline health workers it's hard for them to find the time even to fit in extra things so that in itself is pretty impressive um now scott i just like to um, I know when you have mentioned self-care earlier and your own approach to it, which was wonderful. What would be your three main tips as we wrap up this wonderful conversation? What are your three main tips when it comes to um, healthy food and caring for yourself or for our broader Mindarma community and anyone listening? I think the starting point is the acknowledgement that nutrition is critical for your mm. own self-care. Um, everyone eats, everyone needs to eat to live and function. And the more research we do, we know that your dietary pattern can either help drive physical and mental health ailments or be protective against that. So I think we need to acknowledge that and give it the space that it deserves in that nutrition is critical. Um, if you think about your mental well-being, there's 30-odd uh, nutrients that are play a role in your brain function. And so if you're not providing the, the right nutrition, you can just see how that it has the potential to, to impact your, your mental well-being. Mm. The second tip is to find something that works for you. Don't aim for perfection and give yourself a bit of a break 
as soon as you assume you're going to be perfect and something doesn't go to plan, um, then all's not lost. It, it, it's okay and you can, um, as I myself do now, is try and look to the future and look for opportunities to, you know, look for, for it to be pleasurable as well as you know, nutritious and, and satiating mm. as well. Something that's worked for, because I've talked about, you know, having things in the, the fridge and, and freezer and having different options available that can be really short term. One thing that actually really worked with the people in the mental health service is, and, and I think it might be applicable to people that, you know, have really short amounts of time and, you know, so many other focuses is what I call the 5515 that we created, which is five, it's a little cookbook of things we just pulled together that we decided that we'd like to eat. And it was five ingredients, five steps maximum, and 15 minutes preparation and cooking time maximum. And Mm. having these stored and considering these options so that, you know, the times that you don't want to be a master chef, have these items ready at home, or even I would keep them at the workplace so that I can whip up a, a lunch in 10 minutes, eating five, and that's 15 minutes out of my day. And I've, you know, feel like I've had quite a, you know, rewarding lunch, and then I can spend some time outside and that sort of thing as well. That's brilliant. I love that. Five, five, 15. And what you've shared is, is quite profound too, because it does speak to pausing and prioritizing our well-being too, which can, again, as we've been talking about, for a lot of those working in service to others-oriented occupations, that can easily fall down the to-do list. But how do we weave it into our day? And I love that approach, 5-5-15, isn't it? It's, it's, mm. it's accessible. Even I can imagine having done that when I was younger, if someone had shared it with me <laughs> back in the day. Yeah, it's accessible. Mm. It's just something that could work for a lot of people. Um, mm. Mm-hmm. And be a bit more realistic to them than some of the other recipes that you you tend to find online, which require a lot more time and energy and ingredients. Absolutely. And can feel a bit overwhelming too if you haven't cooked for a while. You know, again, getting back to that sense of feeling overwhelmed by information. Um, Dr. Scott Teasdale, it's been absolutely wonderfully insightful speaking with you and hearing about your work and your research. And I'm so grateful for you taking the time. And we wish you all the very best in this important research, which will undoubtedly continue to unfold and improve the mental health of so many people in our community. So thank you for all that you do. And we hope to have you back someday soon, Scott, to share even more of your wisdom with us. Thank you for having me on and I'll happily come back and uh, share some more in the future. Brilliant. Thanks, Scott. Thank you. The Mindarma podcast shares stories of personal resilience and mental health. If you are impacted by any of the stories shared in the podcast, please consider reaching out for support. In Australia, you may choose to call Lifeline on 13 11 14. If you are living outside of Australia, please visit befrienders.org for support services in your country. Thank you for joining us on the Mindama podcast. We invite you to discover even more with the Mindama e-learning program. Mindama is an award-winning program being used by thousands of workers as they take on some of the world's most challenging roles. Learn more about your brain, unwind with relaxing guided mindfulness exercises, and discover simple, practical skills you can use whenever the going gets tough. Find out more at mindama.com. Purchase online, or better still, ask your boss about bringing Mindama into your workplace.